Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. All right, today we are talking about The Wind-Up Girl by Paolo Bacigalupi. And uh, it's Italian, of course, so it's Bacigalupi. And The Wind-Up Girl is a hugely successful novel, won the Hugo and Nebula Awards, as well as a bunch of other awards. So let's talk about The Wind-Up Girl in terms of what it actually is. It's a, it's a novel about... We're going to talk about the first half of it today, and then tomorrow, I mean on Monday, we're going to talk about the rest. It's a novel about a dystopian future. What's the word dystopian about? What does that word mean? Well, you can think of utopian. So what's a dystopian? Okay, like a reality, like where the civil structure is kind of, kind of in disarray. It's not, it's not perfect like utopia. Yeah, in fact, it's way worse than not perfect. It's like bad. Terrible. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's not just the issue of things not working right. It's when things fall apart. Yeah, go ahead. It's kind of a warning. Um, it's like an exaggerated version of what will happen if we continue to do something that we are currently doing yeah. um, that the author thinks is bad. That's what dystopian novels are best at. What they do is they start with something that we're actually doing now and say, if we continue the way we're doing, this is what's going to happen. So this version of dystopian futures is based on something called biopunk. Now, biopunk is different from cyberpunk, and we're going to be reading some cyberpunk novels uh, like Snow Crash by Neil Stephenson, uh, Neuromancer, of course, by William Gibson. That's a great one. Those are sort of the classics that started the, cyber, the cyberpunk eras. And the cyberpunk era is basically the use of computers. Basically, it's oriented around people jacking into the system, very much like Matrix, where the guys actually plug themselves in in some way, shape, or form. And we're getting to that now, where people are getting to the point where they have realistic type of Google goggles that put over their faces, and they get plugged into the computer, and they see real-life stuff. In 10 years' time, it's a little bit... Okay, the people who are sitting in this class 10 years from now will have those goggles, and they'll be looking at you as, you know, dinosaurs that weren't really on the great stuff. But they're going to be having goggles and ear stuff that's going to make it totally realistic. And the games that you play on flat panel TVs, they're going to be playing on these things, and they're going to be literally immersed, completely immersed, totally, totally immersed. Go ahead. There's actually that stuff right now. Um, I think there's, like, developing software. It's called the Oculus Rift, where yep. you just put it on your face and then you're just like literally in whatever you want, like a video, you can like be a hawk. That's like exactly right. And stuff. But you said it yourself, it's starting now. Yeah. Ten years from now, it won't be starting. It'll be as common as a flat panel TV. So ten years from now, it'll be it. Go ahead. Um, I read an article recently that was talking about how like 10 or 15 years ago, no one would have thought that video conferencing was possible, where you could yeah. be somewhere and see someone else. Um, and they were kind of predicting that in another 15 years, or possibly before that, you'll be able to touch people that you aren't with. Um, you'll be able to what? To touch people that you aren't with, like oh, video chatting, but like actually more, yeah. well, more like that, being face-to-face. There are going to be advances. That's exactly right. And so you can imagine 
in just, in fact, what you see with your flat panel TVs, you'll probably have a situation in 10 years where holographic TVs are the norm, and Princess Leah, Han Solo, and Luke Skywalker are going to be literally in the middle of your living room doing all the swashbuckling of Star Wars, and you won't be watching them on a flat TV, you'll be literally watching them stand next to your coffee table. So, this technology is happening, but biopunk is different. Biopunk is where super advanced applications of biology, not cyberpunk, not cyber stuff, not computer-related stuff, but biologically-related stuff. And the reason this is important <coughs> is because in this particular future, this particular future is one where the technology has crashed. The computer stuff, even the power isn't there. The whole world is basically unpowered. So it's not a cyberpunk orientation, but a biopunk orientation. So this is a biopunk novel, but it is also a, a novel about a dystopian future. Let's talk about some of the ideas that were initially sort of raised in the first half of the novel. Who is the wind-up girl? Go ahead. Um, she's pretty much a slave. Um, come to think of, like, if you think about it, because well, a she slave. Is, okay. She's a slave. Uh, she was genetically enhanced um, person. Actually, is she considered a person? No, uh, technically not. Really, sort of. It's they don't really know how to. They. Yeah, it's a gray area. Yeah. yeah. And then, well, oh, it's one of those guys. Go ahead. Keep on talking. Um. Well, she has her skin is different. Um, different than a regular human because their pores like, are kind of like softer, more close together. I would. And why did they do that? Um, to, I mean, just to make her not as human as. No, there was a reason. It's true that resulted in her being not so human mm -hmm. in the traditional DNA sense. But why do they make the pores so closely spaced that she cannot even smoother. sweat very easily? Go ahead. What? It makes her skin smoother. Hey, and why did were they interested in making her skin smoother? Because her type, there were other types, but her type specifically was engineered to be kind of an escort. Yeah, sort of a substitute for a prostitute, but a lady that would be an escort, yeah, that would be a bed companion. Yeah, except that you have to share prostitutes. And What's you that? Have to, you have to share prostitutes, and she was sort of engineered to belong to one person. Yeah, to belong to one person. Um, perfect skin, totally smooth. And what about that? What happened when she had the skin with the pores that couldn't sweat? Actually, they could under extreme conditions, but only a little bit. Basically, they didn't sweat and perfectly smooth. Why was that done? I mean, so what, what happened because of that? Um, she overheats. It's kind of like they lost um, in an effort to be like beautiful. They aren't really being practical. She overheats. I mean, she like roasts to the point when you touch her, it's like, that's really really surprisingly hot. So, if you have this wind-up girl that's genetically engineered to have smooth skin, what other things did she have that were sort of odd about her that they sort of built in that was sort of weird? What about her movements? Go ahead, go ahead. Um, her movements were engineered so that they actually resembled that of a wind-up doll. I'm assuming that has something to do with the culture. She's Japanese engineered, so would match the uh, <coughs> Japanese culture. And um, I said so they have sort of fascination with um, dolls and animatrons and things like that. And what about a wind-up doll? How do they move? 
Uh, they move. It was described as in a herky-jerky herky fashion. Yeah, sort of a jerking fashion, so that when she moves, she has sort of this jerking sort of orientation to it. What about her sexuality? Since she was given perfect skin to please her master, what about her sexuality? They can genetically fine-tune anything in this world. Go ahead. So what about that? What did, what did they do to her? Her life sort of functions around offering sexual pleasure. That's yep, essentially life. what she was engineered for. But what happens when she has sex? It brings out the movements. It makes the movements more extreme. Also, what else happens when she has sex? Mandatory and she can't even control it. you got to read these novels closely. It's the raciest part of the whole novel. I tell you, it's the raciest chapter. Uh, she orgasms without control. That's exactly right. As soon as anything enters her vagina, she has an orgasm and cannot control it. Even when it's a, you know incredibly brutal situations of torture. So that's been genetically put in. So... This literally is a woman who is genetically engineered to actually follow commands. When you order her to do something, she has to follow it. It's very for her, difficult for her to, to disobey. She has smooth skin, so she overheats. That assumes that they were going to keep these wind-up girls in a climate-controlled environment. But that fell apart in certain areas. And in this case, how did she end up being in Thailand of all places? What happened to her? Why did she end up being in Thailand and then there she is? And Thailand, if you've ever been to Thailand, it's hot and the power is gone, so there's no air conditioning. How did that happen? Go ahead. Her uh, previous owner brought her with him to Thailand and decided it would be more cost efficient to leave her there and upgrade when he returned. Exactly, and why was it more cost efficient? Because you need all sorts of uh, passes to... Also, the, the ticket back the to ticket Japan back. was expensive. And he thought he could get a, a newer model rather than pay the airfare. So she was left there because she was not a, considered a real person. She was considered a commodity. <coughs> now, this is raising a whole bunch of issues that are really strange. And we can sort of say to ourselves, this is like so ridiculous. We're sort of having to purchase this idea that you can make a wind-up girl automatically have orgasms, super tight skin. She doesn't age very easily. She can be around for like many years and she still looks like she's a teenager. And so like, this is like so ridiculous. This is so stupid. Why should we buy into this? That's, that's the first question you should ask. So when Paolo Bacigalupi actually wrote this novel, it got all of these awards. Why? Because the people who read science fiction say... This stuff isn't so imaginary. So, but you should be asking this as students of science fiction and politics. Why is this not imaginary? So I brought in some things for you to see. So let's look at some of these things. There are two ways that you can think about genetics, biology, the future. One of, the, one of the ways you can think about it is in terms of what is here in the very now. 
And if you're stuck with what is here in the very now as being what's possible, you really can't sort of see how things could change. So what I want to do is to show you how things actually can change genetically. When was the last time you had a conversation with someone from a different party than yourself? So say you're, say you're a Democrat and you're talking to a conservative Republican and you had a conversation it just was bouncing. They weren't agreeing with anything. How many here have seen Bill Maher? He's a comedian. He's on HBO. Okay, he's a liberal Democrat. And everyone's, uh, he quite often, very often, he has conservative speakers come in and he debates them and talks about them with his panel and so on. He throws his hands up. He can't understand what's going on. And, and it just sort of bounces, the, the talks about. So how many of you have had that experience where you talked about, some, let's say you're a conservative Republican and you're talking to a liberal Democrat and you're saying, you know, this is just ridiculous. And the liberal Democrat is just sort of saying, just, just great. How many people have just had something like that where you talk politically and so basically everybody's had that type of experience. When you talk to them, didn't you try to convince them? Say, hey, look, that's just not right. It should be this way, it's not that way. Well, isn't it interesting that some of the latest and most provocative political science research is saying you had no chance in the beginning because their political views are burned into their hardware, into their brains had nothing to do with you convincing them anything. It has to do with whether they're conservative or, or, or conservative or liberal, had to do with the genes that are going on there. And literally the only way you could get them to change their mind is to splice different genes into their body. Now let's look at that. Here's an article out of the New York Times. I actually have the original article here. It came out, it was a very controversial article that came out in the American Political Science Review, which is a leading journal in political science. And uh, it was written by John Alford, Carolyn Funk, and John R. Hibbing. And it was so controversial in its day because it made this claim that, this is back in 2005, that political ideology and political partisanship even had genetic tracings. And it wasn't small. It wasn't like at the margins. It was like whopping. What they essentially did, and they've done this lots of times, there's a, lots of genetic type of stuff in there, but essentially this has been looked at and examined and re-examined and it just comes back and back. You're getting the same results. You're looking at twins. And you're looking at twins in particular that have been separated at birth. And in and essentially, if you have twins that are separated in birth, and one's raised in a liberal environment and one's raised in a conservative environment, well, you'd expect, using an environmental model of political opinion, that the one raised in a liberal environment will be liberal, and the one raised in a conservative environment will be conservative. And that's not what they found. They found that the twins were like each other, and they never even knew each other. They never grew up next to each other, but when you compared them later on, they had the same type of thoughts. It was genetically imprinted on them. So let me read you, not from the original, let me read you from the New York Times article about this because it was such a big deal that when this article came out, it hit the news. So let me read you the news article because it's shorter, briefer, hits to the point, all right? 
All right, now this is an um, article by Benedict Carey about this original research, and this came out on June 21st, 2005. Political scientists have long held that people's upbringing and experience determine their political views. A child raised on, priest, on peace protests and Bush loathing generally... By the way, this was during the George Bush regime. Uh, that's your George Bush, not his father, which was earlier. So a child raised on peace protests and Bush loathing generally tracks left as an adult unless derailed by some powerful life experience. One reared on tax protests and a hatred of Kennedys usually lists to the right, the so-called Tea Party people, right? Okay. But on the basis of a new study, a team of political scientists is arguing that people's gut-level reaction to issues like the death penalty, taxes, and abortion is strongly influenced by genetic inheritance. The new research builds on a series of studies that indicate that people's general approach to social issues, more conservative or more progressive, is influenced by genes. Environmental influences like upbringing, the study suggests, play a more central role in party affiliation as a Democrat or Republican, much as they do in affiliation with a sports team. The report, which appears in the current issue of the American Political Science Review, the professionals, profession's premier journal, uses genetics to help answer several open questions in political science. They include why some people defect from the party in which they were raised, and why some political campaigns, like the 2004 presidential election, turned into verbal blood sport, through, though polls find little disparity in most Americans' views on specific issues like gun control and affirmative action. The study is the first on genetics to appear in the journal. So this is brand new. This is cutting edge. This is like stuff that the older professors never even heard of when they went to graduate school. Quote, I thought here's something new and different by respected political scholars uh, that many political scientists never saw before in their lives, said Dr. Lee Siegelman, editor of the journal and a professor of political science at George Washington University. Dr. Siegelman said that in many fields, the findings would create nothing more than a large yawn, but that in ours, people will storm the barricades. Geneticists who study behavior and personality have known for 30 years that genes play a large role in people's instinctive emotional responses to certain issues, their social temperament. It is not that opinions on specific issues are written into a person's DNA. Rather, genes prime people to respond cautiously or openly to the mores of a social group. Only recently have researchers begun to examine how these predispositions in combination with childhood and later life experience experiences shape political behavior. Dr. Linda, Lyndon J. Eaves, a professor of human genetics and psychiatry at Virginia Commonwealth University, said the new research did not add much to this. Dr. Eaves was not involved in the study, but allowed the researchers to analyze data from a study of twins that he is leading. Still, he said the findings were plausible. And the real significance here is that this paper brings genetics to the attention of a whole new field and gives it a new way of thinking about social, cultural, and political questions. In the study, three political scientists, Dr. John Hibbing of the University of Nebraska, Dr. John R. Alford of Rice University, and Dr. Carolyn L. Funk of Virginia Commonwealth, combed survey data from two large continuing studies, including more than 8,000 sets of twins. From an extensive battery of surveys on personality traits, religious beliefs, and other psychological factors, the researchers selected 28 questions most relevant to political behavior. The questions asked people to 
please indicate whether or not you agree with each topic or are uncertain on issues like property taxes, capitalism, unions, and X-rated movies. Most of the twins had a mixture of conservative and progressive views, but overall they leaned slightly one way or the other. The researchers then compared uh, diazygotic or fraternal twins who, like any biological siblings, share 50% of their genes with monozygotic or identical twins who share 100% of their genes. Calculating how often identical twins agree on an issue and subtracting the rate at which fraternal twins agree on the same item provides a rough measure of the gene's influence on that attitude. A shared family environment for twins, twins reared together is assumed. On school prayer, for example, the identical twins' opinions correlated at a rate of 0.66, a measure of how often they agreed. The correlation rate for fraternal twins was 0.46. This translated into a 41% contribution from inheritance. Does everyone understand that? 41%. That is huge. Okay? That is huge. Let me read that paragraph again. On school prayer, for example, the identical twins' opinions correlated at a rate of 0.66, a measure of how often they agreed. The correlation for identical twins was 0.46. This translated into a 41% contribution from inheritance. That's huge. That's huge. As found in previous studies, attitudes about issues like school prayer, property taxes, and the draft were among the most influenced by inheritance, researchers found. Others like modern art and divorce were less so. And in the twins' overall score, derived from 28 questions, genes accounted for 53% of the differences. But after correcting for the tendency of political like-minded men and women to marry each other, the researchers also found that the twins' self-identification as Republican or Democrat was far more dependent on environmental factors like upbringing and life experiences than their social orientation, which the researchers called ideology. So the ideology was a bigger influence genetically than, say, political orientation. Inheritance counted for 14% of the difference in the the researchers found. So some things are like hugely dependent on inheritance from genes, and some things are less so, but there's still some influence. We are measuring two separate things here, ideology and partisan affiliation, Dr. Hibbing, the senior author, said. He added that this research team found a large difference in inheritability between the two, very hard to believe, but that it held up. So people were having difficulty believing these results, but the results didn't go away. The implications of this difference may be far-reaching, the authors argue. For years, political scientists tried in vain to learn how family dynamics like closeness between parents and children or the importance of politics on a household influenced by political ideology. But the study suggests that an inherited social orientation may overwhelm the more subtle effects of family dynamics. Meaning your genes may overwhelm everything else, especially with some issues that have an inherited influence of over 40%. A mismatch between an inherited social orientation and a given party may also explain why some people defect from a party. Many people who are genetically conservative may be brought up as Democrats, and some who are genetically more progressive may be raised as Republicans. In tracking attitudes over the years, geneticists have found that social attitudes tend to stabilize in the late teens and early 20s, when young people begin to fend for themselves. So you're right now at the age 
where your social attitudes are starting to gel. And we now know from lots of studies, if we measure you when you're 70 and 80, we'll basically get what we're getting now. So your political orientation, your ideology and other stuff like that, right now it's solidifying like jello, like it's becoming solid. And it doesn't really matter what type of change happens between now and the next 50 years, we'll be able to predict what you're going to be like in 50 years by knowing what happened now. So that's... Um, okay. Some mismatched people remain loyal to their family's political party, but circumstances can override inherited bent. The draft may look like a good idea until your number is up. The death penalty may seem barbaric until a loved one is murdered. Other people whose social orientations are out of line with their given parties may feel a discomfort that can turn, into, turn them into opponents of their former party, Dr. Alfred said. Zen Miller, there's a quote, Ze, Ze, I'm sorry, Zell Miller, former governor of Georgia, would be a good example of this, Dr. Alfred said, referring, referring to the Democratic governor and senator from Georgia who gave an impassioned speech at the Republican National Convention last year against the Democrats' nominee, John, John Kerry, so he essentially was switching. Support for Democrats among white men has been eroding for years in the South, Dr. Alfred said. And Mr. Miller is remarkable for remaining nominally a Democrat, despite his divergence from the party line on many issues. Reached by telephone, uh, basically people wanted to say, if Miller's a good example, let's call him up and pick his brain, what's, what's going on? So reached by telephone, Mr. Miller said he did not quite see it that way. He said that his views had not changed much since his days as a Marine, but that the Democratic Party had moved. Quote, and I'm not talking about inch by inch like a glacier, said Mr. Miller, who makes the case in a new book, A Deficit of Decency. I'm saying the thing got up and flew away. Well, the idea that certain social issues produce immediate unthinking reactions comes through in other political research as well. In several recent studies, Dr. Milton Lodge of the State, Uni State University of New York at Stony Brook has shown that certain names and political concepts, like taxes or Clinton, for example, produce almost instantaneous positive or negative reaction. These intensely charged political reflex are shaped partly by inheritance, Dr. Lodge says. Okay, so this is wrap wrapping it up now. It may be the clash of a visceral, genetically primed social orientation that gives political debate its current malice and fire, the study suggests. Although the two broad genetic types, more conservative and more progressive, may find some common ground on specific issues, they represent fundamental differences that go deeper than many people assume, the new research suggests. When people talk about the political debate becoming increasingly ugly and folks, it doesn't get... Well, I guess it could get worse than what it is now, but this is pretty bad. The, the level of lockjaw in Congress is horrific. I mean, just nothing's getting through. And they recently changed some of the rules in the Senate, so you can't filibuster. And then the Republican head in the Senate said, okay, well, now we're going to become really uncooperative. <laughs> Bill Maher's response was, what are you talking about? You can't get any more uncooperative than you are now. So the point is, this is really a time. So, when getting back to the article, when people talk about the political debate becoming increasingly ugly, they often blame talk radio or the people doing the debating, but they've got it backwards, Dr. Alfred said. These genetically predisposed ideologies are polarized, and that's what makes the debate so nasty. The debates are not people <coughs> arguing ideas. 
they're talking ideas, but they're arguing genetics. And the genetics are not going to change. Does it make sense? The genetics are not going to change. The genetics are everything. You see it in people's eyes when they talk politics. I'm getting back to the article now. You can hear it in their voices. After about the third response, we all start sounding like talk radio on some issues. This is the last two sentences. The researchers are not optimistic about the future of bipartisan cooperation or national unity because men and women tend to seek mates with a similar ideology. They say the two gene pools are becoming, if anything, more concentrated, not less. And, that's the end of the article, where are the conservatives living? What's that? In the South. Not just the South. In Connecticut. Rural areas. Pardon me? In Connecticut, where I live also. Also in Connecticut, where I live. Well, in Connecticut, where you live. But in generally, in the United in States, States, where are the more conservative populations? Non-urban areas. Non-urban areas. The upper class. Uh-huh. The upper class. If you had a map of the United States, and you were like a weatherman. The Midwest. What's that? The Midwest and mountain plain region. Well, you're sort of getting it. The whole center of the country. The south going straight north. Including so the from the south, south, southeast to Texas uh, and Oklahoma, and go up. So that you're talking Wyoming, the Dakotas, everything like that, okay? That's where the conservatives are. Where are the more liberal populations? The coast. The coast. The coast. Now, according to this article... What is the only way that you could get a country that would start being more bipartisan and more cooperative? Genetics. Mix the gene pools. What's that? Mix the gene pools. How? Force people with different ideologies to <coughs> procreate. Yeah, and how would it have to happen? If all the conservatives are in the middle and the liberals are on the coast... Mass. What's it? A lot of mass movement. That's exactly right. And is the mass movement... How, when was the last time that you heard a New Yorker say, God, if I could only go to Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> when was the last time you ever heard that? New Yorkers have a famous... It's a cover of New Yorker magazine where they saw all of Manhattan. That was like covering their whole universe. Their whole, and then there was the Hudson River. And then there was a little sliver called Jersey. <laughs> and beyond that, it was the wasteland. I mean... I knew, there was a guy, when I was in the Peace Corps, uh, there was this guy who had never, ever been outside of Manhattan. Ever. About your age, a little older, actually, a few years older. And they stuck him in Loing Galani in Lake Turkana. That is probably the most desolate region (laughs) of the planet Earth. In a a hut that was made of sticks. And you were so grateful that it was made of sticks because the wind blew right through and that was the only way you were going to keep cool. And they had spiders the size of your hands, this big, called camel spiders. I woke up once sleeping on, in one of those huts, actually outside in uh, the hut, and one of those camel spiders was like staring at me. And they're care- you have to be careful with the camel spiders, because they come up to you when you're at night, and they have a little bit of like numbing stuff in their mouth, and they sort of nibble at you and inject the numbing thing so you can't feel it, and then they start eating away. <laughs> So it's not a good thing. And I woke up in the morning, one of those camel spiders, it's literally bigger than a tarantula, staring at you like it's aware of everything, like it's a person. And sort of saying, hmm, I wonder where I should start nibbling. And then I sort of said, what are you doing here? And it sort of looks at me, sort of, you know, rises up and sort of realizes, and then sort of, it makes a beeline for one of the stick huts and sort of crawls into the sticks, and then you can't catch it anymore. 
And you really don't want to catch it anyway. I mean, the thing looks like a dog. I mean, it's so huge. So the point is, that's where they stuck this guy. He had only been in Manhattan, and then they stuck him in Lake Turkana. And he had funny stories. Like one day he woke up in the morning and decided he was going to put on his uh, pants because, you know, he thought, be respectable, have pants when you walk outside of your hut. He didn't check to see that there was a scorpion in the leg. So what happened is he put on his pants and the scorpion started to bite him at the bottom of the leg and started to crawl up and bite him repeatedly on the leg as it was going while he was screaming and trying to get the pants off. So you see, as far as he was concerned, the world was Manhattan. And then he found out that the world was different from Manhattan. It was this desolate region called Loingalani in the east coast of Lake Turkana in East Africa. And then he decided at the end of it he was going to spend the rest of his life finding everything in between. Loingalani was a little bit, well, it was more desolate than Tatooine in Star Wars. Remember Tatooine in Star Wars where Luke Skywalker came from? Well, think of Tatooine scaled down a whole bunch of steps. That's Loingalani. <laughs> I mean, it's a, big, it's a big thing once a month when the truck comes through carrying supplies. <laughs> it's a big the town fest the festival is anyway so the point is that if people's genes are affecting how they think and the only way you're really going to get people to think different is to fiddle with the genes then the genes control everything if you don't even have free thought i mean everybody you probably started you took this you took this course thinking you're independent people, you have free thought, you have free will. And here, you have Professor Courtney Brown telling you, free will? <laughs> Don't even start. You're not even close to free will. You're hardwired. Why do you think you're so different than the wind-up girl? Why do you think that's so weird? Remember, I just asked you, like, is that wind-up girl so crazy? I mean, this is like ridiculous. Jean's controlling how she reacts, whether she has an orgasm, when she has an orgasm. At this point, the research is clear. You're no different than her. The genes control how you think. You can't even have a free thought without the genes saying, this is how it's going to turn out. Isn't it different, though, if we, the wind-up girl was engineered by other people knowingly, but we weren't necessarily, like, even if you wanted to argue that our parents meeting and reproducing and creating us was kind of a form of genetic engineering, if they didn't do it on purpose, are we really the same? But aren't kind we of talking? Created? Aren't we talking? The differences in the details. The reality is, it is true. There, with the wind-up girl, it was a purposeful decision to make what they considered, according to the novel, in Japanese society, the perfect, the perfect uh, geisha girl type thing. Okay, the perfect sort of consort. But. If you do it purposefully or it's done accidentally, is there any real difference if it's all genes? Go ahead. I don't think you can consider it engineering if it's not purposive. If there's no consider, no, go ahead. I, said, I don't think you can consider it engineering if it's not purposive. If there's no concerted abject goal, I don't think that it's engineering. I think that we're an accident, and I think that we are sort of a, you know, it's sort of like biological magnification. We are the result of. You know, if that study is you know, true, we are the result of the, you know, the beliefs and the political uh, alignment of our fathers and grandfathers, you know, mothers, grandmothers. But that wasn't necessarily, just like she was saying that, that wasn't on purpose. There was no, there was no concerted goal there. With Enico, 
there was a goal. You know, they were creating her like a consumer product. We haven't been created like a consumer product. We may be an accident, but we're not. I don't think we're engineered like she is. I th and I think that's why they treat her so differently. I think it has less to do with in the novel. I think it has less to do with oh, you know, she's being controlled by her genes. I think it has more to do with like she's not. She doesn't count as a real person because she was planned and created, like with a sole purpose of being this kind of being. I think it's the the fact that she was put into being on purpose by someone else to serve someone else that makes her less than human. To most you know, people. the novel actually goes into this a little bit, where she has questions about, where she has debates about whether she's actually a person. Remember they said, do wind-ups wind have a soul? And she said, I think, I feel pain. And she wanted to get to her kind in the northern parts of the country so that she wouldn't have to be tortured like that. But I hear what you're saying. Both of you are saying, and this is very interesting, that if it's done on purpose in a lab, then it's one thing. And that's a completely different situation than if it, handle, than if it happens accidentally. But the result is still a person. I want to raise your I want to raise this to one other aspect. A few couple hundred years ago, people of color were not considered a person. And the only difference was they were colored dark. And they were treated no different than the wind-up girl. They were treated as property, they were owned, they were slaves. They were brought in from Africa, treated absolutely no different than ones running our country right now. So, the point is, the arguments that you're making is that if it's natural, it's okay, and if it's unnatural, it's planned. But Africans were natural, but they turned out that they were regular people, but they were considered slaves. So, really, what is the difference in real terms Go ahead. I think it's it's a uh, chicken and the egg argument. You know, I don't think it's necessarily that our genetics define who we are. I think that, especially if you believe in the theory of epigenetics, that it's who we are that defines our genetics. The choices that we make and the preferences that we pick, you know, during our life that we can actually absorb as part of our epigenetic makeup that then we pass on. So I don't think it's necessarily that genetics choose who we are. I think that it's who we are chooses our genetics, and then everything cascades from there. I only wish that. Um, that Buckley, William Buckley, could be here right now, because I think he would walk over and pat you on the back and say, with his funny accent, he'd say, my good man, that is exactly... <laughs> and, and if David Brooks was here, who we you know, read something about earlier, David Brooks would probably agree with you as well. Um, but you're really running into a bunch of presuppositions that you're making to get to that argument. You're really making this idea that the free choice is the key. And you're actually extending that free choice idea, too, that if you use your free choice to create a genetic anomaly, then you own that thing. And you can do whatever you want with that thing. But if you don't use your free choice, then that genetic anomaly is not owned by you. Now, the real question is, with the wind-up girl, if the Japanese genetically engineered her to be the way she is, 
she's in Thailand. She wasn't genetically engineered by free choice by the Thai. She was genetically engineered by the Japanese. So if you extend your argument one more time, why should she still be owned now that she's in Thailand? Why should she still be considered someone who could be mulched? A non-person. Someone without a soul. I mean, just a few hundred years ago, black people in the United States, it was said that they didn't have a soul. That they did not have a right to be considered a person. And finally, at the very end, they said they could be a certain fraction of a human being, and they put that into the Constitution. I mean, it was ridiculous. They were actually measuring how much of a fraction of a human being that person could be. But the same thing happened with them. The same thing happened with Afri African Americans. You know, when we, when uh, you know, the Dutch or uh, the British found African Americans on the continent of Africa, they didn't. It wasn't that they thought they were a person there and brought them to the United States, decided they were subhuman. When they saw them in their tribal, you know, environment, they thought they were subhuman and brought them to the United States, and they were still subhuman. So if Emiko was subhuman in Japan, then she'd still be subhuman in Thailand. I think she'd be even more subhuman in Thailand because she's not their creation. She's not only a creation that they don't necessarily understand, but she's also a creation that they don't understand, created by a people that are not their own. Now, I hear what you're saying, but I want to hear some other people challenge these ideas, because really you're defending, you're defending the, the, in a sense, you're defending the issue of slavery, as Amiko is experiencing it. I don't think that's right, but I think that's why they feel that way. Say some more. Go ahead. You, you say, you go first and then you. Okay, go ahead. Uh, well, trying to rationalize their beliefs, I think it comes down really to basic human xenophobia. We have an innate fear and disdain for things that are different from us. Um, this amigo is not created the way that we were, and um, therefore she has something to fear or loathe. All right. It's just simply the differentness, the differentness of it. Right. Okay. Go ahead. I think it's also that people often underestimate things that are different, and it's kind of like a process where you have to learn um, or observe that people actually, or anything, not necessarily just um, specific people, but that they do have the same capacity as we do. So if you don't know, a lot of times you'll underestimate someone, and it's kind of like a process of observation um, where they have to assert the, like, their right as well. You know, it's so interesting what you, what you folks are saying. Um, I hear everybody sort of talking about the sort of conditions. Now, maybe correct me if I'm wrong in hearing what you're saying, but I'm hearing people talk about the conditions under which people may be categorized. I'm still hearing the acceptance of some type of categorization. I don't think it's acceptance. I think it's more just rationalization. Yeah, I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm accepting the way the Thai people were treating Emiko, but I think... Okay, I see what you're saying, but by, by saying you're finding the rationalization, isn't that simply another way of saying you can understand how the, the separation... I mean, you know, there had to have been some mindset, you're right. There had to be some, uh, some understanding that led them to those actions. So, I mean, yeah, so there, there has to be some understanding of where their head was at, or else it would just be senseless inhumanity. And I don't think okay. there is okay. such thing as senseless inhumanity. Go ahead. Um, I was just going to say... Aren't, as a human race, aren't we classified no matter where we go? If I were to go to China, I'd be classified as like different than the people that live there just because I wouldn't be 
as the same ethnicity, race, or have the same cultural experience. And here, they're considered different. So no matter where we end up in the world, depends on how we're viewed as an individual or person. Yes, I can see that. But when you describe it with that level of certainty, I'm also hearing an acceptance of that. And what I'm trying to point out is that, and we only have a couple minutes left, that's why I'm trying to sort of force this, is doesn't anybody see that Polo uh, Bacigalupi is actually trying to get you to challenge those ideas? Yeah, that's the point of the novel, is that that's why he has her as a narrator in some chapters, so that but, you're in the but mindset. But no one yet, yes, it's a, yeah, that's, that's a good point, but no one yet has gripped, has come to grip, or maybe it's just bouncing. Remember, ideas are genetically imprinted, in a sense. But maybe it's just bouncing, but no one's yet responding to the ideas that I wrote by, writing, by spending all this time reading that article, that genetically you are no different from the wind-up girl. You can't even think a free thought. Now, she's pre-programmed to have an orgasm. How are you different if you can't even have an own, a political ideology that's your own, that's, that's not genetically engineered? Go ahead, you, you raise and then her own, so you first. Well, it's like, the whole point is like, what is race? Is it like, uh, is it where you're from or is it your genetics? I mean, that's, I feel like that's part of it too. Is, um... And what if the genetics are different? Does, at what point does the person become expendable? Non-person, a slave. You have to understand, this, this novel is actually very broadly... What, what issues in society in the couple... Okay, you talk, and then I want to talk about one last thing before we, before we close it. I just want to talk about, like, the genes. Um, saying that the genes determine what we're going to think, but what about, if you get into psychology of it, there's genes that are expressed, and then there's genes that are not expressed. And when you took AP Psych, for example, you learn that where you're raised and how you're raised and uh, events that factor into your life affect your gene expression. So couldn't some of those ideas of your genes be held back and not expressed? So you have the genes, but they wouldn't necessarily be expressed. That's a good point. You're going to have things in you genetically that may not come out, but actually it may come out in your offspring. But, but now look, this is, I want to point, we're, we're closing up for the day, so I want to, this is a really important thing. I want you to get something that, that um, the author is talking about with this, this wind-up girl concept. Is he talking about something that's abstract? You no. talk about here, slavery. What kind of slavery do you see in the world today that sort of matches the type of thing you're seeing here? Sex trafficking. Sex trafficking? Sex trafficking, for sure. Now listen. Child labor? What's that? Child labor? Child labor? Child labor, sex trafficking, what else? Well, there is a lot of slavery still, just plain physical slavery that goes on in places like Africa, still to this day. There's whole places where, you know, tons of people are born into slavery and can't get out. And in India, a lot of people are enslaved implicitly by the fact that their parents had debts and they were born and they had to... You know, they're told they have to pay off the debts of the parents, which can never actually happen. Now, that's illegal in India, but in fact, it's still done. So, the, the issue is, the idea of slavery is so widespread. And when you talk to people who like to, for some way, take advantage of that, you have to actually listen to them to see that they don't really... For example, in sex trafficking, if you talk to men who are involved in sex trafficking, or women who are involved in sex trafficking, and not necessarily as a provider, but as someone who's 
helping in the kidnapping and the uh, distribution of sex slaves. There are, there, are, there are sort of women pimps that run the brothels as well as, as the men, and those women are captive often. So if you talk to them or their customers, and you sort of just talk about them, you know, about that stuff, you actually find out that the customers themselves often talk in a very mechanical way about these people. They talk about them in a very physical, sort of mechanical way, about, and they're not really talking about them as real live people that they care about. One of the most common things is that when you see that one group of people lines up against another group of people, they don't think of the other people as real people. When you had, for example, in Rwanda, when you had 800,000 people, Tutsis and uh, liberal or you know mixed uh, Hutus, slaughtered by machetes in that slaughter that happened, you know, not many years ago. And you talk to the Hutu that were responsible for that. It's a very mechanical type of thing. And when you talk to... Also the Nazis. I'm sorry, what's that? The Nazis as well. Um, the Nazis yeah, as well. The Nazis was a great example. I'd let you talk about that because I was, I was going to actually end on that, but we're actually out on minutes. If you look at the Nazis... The way they talked, in fact, if you talk to Nazis, we can't because they're, you know, they're dead, but the point is, if those people who talked to Nazis right after World War II and questioned, what in the world were you thinking about? They often said, you know, I don't know whatever happened. It was just like something just... But if you talked to them at that time, and in fact, if you actually do some investigations of the people who ran the prison camps, the extermination camps, the gas chambers, they had dual lives. When they were in Dachau, when they were in the actual concentration camps, they were, they were horrors. And then they had lunch breaks. And they went out of the camp, and they'd meet with their other fellow people, and they would be dancing and having lunch. You'd think it was, you know, they were having a national celebration. It was, you saw them, and they were like totally different people. And you sort of said, what was going on in their minds? And you ask them after the war, what was going on in your mind? And they can't figure it out. The point is that people compartmentalize things, and they come up with reasonings for saying, this person is different from that person. So anyway, what I want you to do is finish the novel. This is a very deep novel, but very interesting, and very relevant to stuff going happen today, because our world is, in very large part, entering a dystopian era. And genetics is going to play a huge part in that. We'll talk about next week, Monday when we meet, the stuff that's going on with genetics right now in terms of genetic modification of foods, what kinds of modifications of foods is going on, how people are thinking about it, the responses coming back from it. We'll incorporate all that, but I want you to finish the novel before we do that. See you on Monday. Have a great weekend, okay?